Hi, and welcome to The Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental journalism brought to you by The Ends Report. I'm James Ajipong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be covering Rishi Sunak's environmental rollbacks. Is it an honest approach to net zero or a misstep? The Lord's charge of deep-rooted complacency levelled at Environment Secretary Therese Coffey, and the PM's plans to take another swing at axing nutrient neutrality rules. For our deep dive, we'll be speaking to financier and rewilder Ben Goldsmith, getting his insights on government ministers, agricultural subsidies, philanthropy, and more. So let's enter the Eco Chamber! So Rishi's at it again after announcing a raft of environmental policy cuts last week that experts said amounted to a watering down of the UK's climate ambitions. And yet the PM has insisted that the country was not, quote, abandoning any of our targets or commitments. There were also a lot of straw men policies in there, too. To help me work out what's fact from fiction, I've got Shosha AD to help me break it down. So, Shosha, what were some of the policy changes that Rishi Sunak announced? Well, let's start with fact rather than fiction. Um, cars. So, Sunak confirmed the ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars and vans that was due to come place in 2030 will now be pushed back five years to 2035. And it's sparked quite a lot of outrage across the industry. Um, for example, the Ford UK chair, Lisa Brankin, said business needs three things from government, ambition, commitment and consistency. And the relaxation of that 2030 deadline would undermine all three. With that said, it doesn't seem that all car manufacturers have got spooked, though. No, I think Nissan actually said that they're still going to go ahead with their plans for electrification by 2030. So I think it does represent... Um, even industry is taking what government's saying with a pinch of salt. And what about other things then that we know were policy that has now been deferred or changed? So Sunak announced um, the ban on the sale of oil, liquid petroleum gas and new coal heating for off-gas grid homes will be pushed back to 2035. Um, so that's another pushback deadline. And that's roughly about a decade from when it was meant to be phased out, which was a 2026. That's right. And it, w- it will mainly um, impact rural properties, um, which is important to know. And on the subject of homes then, um, planned regulations for minimum efficiency energy standards for rental properties are gone. Um, they, they originally would have meant a deadline of 2025 for newly let rentals to achieve energy performance ratings of at least C or above, um, and a deadline of 2028 for all other rented properties to meet this. And there was a task force that had been created to help drive this forwards. That now no longer exists. Yes. Um, it's quite an interesting story because I think um, it was only set up in March, but over the weekend, the task force members were given a letter that was seen by the BBC telling them, it was being wound up. So their aim was to cut energy use in the UK by 15% by 2030, based on a 2021 baseline. And that's across sort of domestic and commercial buildings. But I guess if they're being dissolved, that's probably not the aim anymore. No aims. Okay, so we, we, we know that cars, heating and energy efficiency was on Sunak's policy radar, which he is now either pushed back or cut were deferred. There were also other policy cuts, which weren't policy to cut, were they? Yes. Can you just take us through some of those? Well, we'll start probably with the most um, meme-worthy, perhaps is the right word, um, which was this idea of seven bins. Ah, seven bins. Yes. I am not getting seven bins in my house anymore. Thank God. I don't know. I I like sorting things. Maybe I would have enjoyed it, but I'll never know now. Um, It's it's quite a weird one. I think it's been established that there were never plans for households to have that many bins. But just in case uh, the Prime Minister was confirming there still isn't such policy, um, the inspiration for the announcement was probably in response to the 2021 consultation on consistent waste collections, which is due to be published imminently. 
Um, and in a DEFRA briefing document that we've seen, the Environment Secretary is now said to be leading a new pragmatic approach to boost recycling rates called simpler recycling. Um, and DEFRA have said this new system will mean that all homes in England can recycle the same materials. Okay. There were other straw men policies that we now definitely know aren't going to happen. Yes. I got I got from Rishi, no, I don't have to worry about a meat tax anymore. Yeah, no meat tax. I mean, I'm a vegetarian, but if I was, I'd be grateful that there's no tax on my meat. Oh, and the other one was the, the flying tax, wasn't and it? And the flying tax. I mean, I try not to fly, but I don't have to worry about that either. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think one that I also pulled out, no, it's definitely not the most interesting one on there, was um, they're scrapping a policy that also didn't exist on mandatory car sharing to drive to work. So, so where have these policies come from then? If it's not actually come from the government in the first place, where, what's the source? So in the Climate Change Committee's report on the progress um, that the government was making on reducing emissions, uh, they did actually have quite a few suggestions. And I think these suggestions have been conflated with actual policy. Okay. But they didn't really move past the recommendation stage in the first place. Okay. And Rishi sort of quite publicly batted them down then. Yeah. Because I do remember uh, Henry in Henry Dimbleby's food strategy report, the meat tax suggestion, which was never a conservative policy or labour policy. And yeah, okay, got it. So he's just making sure everyone, we're not getting seven bins, we're not getting a meat tax, and there's no worries about a fly tax. Fly, well, a flying <laughs> tax. Let's worry about the insects later. Even if we want them. But I did take away some concession from the PM. Um, you know, it, to be fair to him, it wasn't all take. There was some give in his speech. Can you just take us through some of the announcements he dropped? Yes, he did have a few updates um, that weren't all sort of scary news for people in this space. Um, he confirmed that a mandate to compel the sale of electric vehicles will be published shortly, and that would start in January 2024. Um, that the 2025 ban on fossil fuel boilers in new homes um, and the wider 2035 ban for boilers is still in place. Um, there was an increase in the grants available for that boiler upgrade scheme. Um, it's a 50% increase to £7,500 to support households. Um, and there was also a Green Future Fellowship pledged. Right, and that's I, I read about that sort of 150 million quid to help 50 scientists. I don't know why specifically 50, but 50 scientists and engineers to develop real breakthrough green technologies. Okay. Yes, and there was also some plans for new reforms to energy infrastructure. Mm. Um, so the UK is going to create a spatial plan and proposals to speed up planning for the most nationally significant projects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know that's, that has been an enormous problem for offshore wind, where they've been developing these huge gigawatt scale farms, and yet they don't have the grid connections on land to actually connect properly. So we do have a lot of response from industry. What about the timing of this announcement, Shosha? I think it is interesting. So although there's never really a good time to scrap green commitments, um, the U-turn was also at the same time as the UN Climate Ambition Summit that was held in New York. Um, and Sunak didn't attend this, which was controversial in itself. And then, of course, he's back home scrapping a lot of our green policies whilst other leaders are pushing for climate change ambition. So the messaging um, and the timing were both interesting, to say the least. So from binned environmental policy to the DEFRA secretary's alleged complacency on water regulation, is our DEFRA leader Therese Coffey really doing that bad, Shosha? Well, according to the House of Lords Industry and Regulators Committee, um, there's been a lack of leadership and deep-rooted complacency when it comes to sort of water regulation and, you know, the government's role in ensuring that goes smoothly. Um, so they think she is. Yes. <laughs> what were, what in particular did they find? I think sort of what set Defra off on the wrong foot 
um, is the committee has raised concerns um, and recommendations for how they can have less complacency, I guess, in terms of water regulation. Um, but they said that the government's response to their recommendations in June was dismissive and, again, this word complacent. Um, so to go into specifics, uh, the department's integrated plan for water, which was published earlier this year and sort of brought together all of the actions that are being taken nationally to improve water quality. They said it contained insufficient policy or drive to meet the government's water targets, which is quite strong wording. Okay. And, and, and that was because they think that that is a lack of leadership, essentially, primarily. Yes, because it's sort of got to outline the steps that everyone takes. Um, they, For example, they found existing policies to reduce water demand might not be sufficient to meet the government's targets and ambitions. Um, they also called the government out, really, for presenting a new ban on plastic and wet wipes, um, as if it was something that's new, but it's really been in the works since around 2017. Um, they said it's been delayed by a second consultation, uh, which described as unnecessary and deeply damaging to the environment. Okay, so we're going to have another consultation on whether we want to ban wet wipes, mm-hmm. even though we've already had one and everyone was happy with, with, with the idea. Okay, and what about investment and money? What, what do they think yes. what do they think about coffee's reputation on that? So they said there's been significant past underinvestment in the sector, which has sort of left a cumulative backlog. Um, and they've raised concerns that in the current plans, they're not meeting what is needed to deliver this plan that the government set out to tackle sewage pollution, which is called the Storm Overflows Reduction Plan. And they've called for the government to outline how they're going to deliver this investment in response to this letter. So it's not all sort of targeted at coffee, even though it's been addressed here. It's mainly targeted at DEFRA, really. And they, I mean, they did welcome off what's new powers to stop dividends being paid by a water company uh, if it doesn't meet its, you know, commitments. And yet they also were a bit worried about, you know, the sort of scaring investors off. What does DEFRA have to say about all this? Um, so DEFRA actually firmly disagreed with um, what the committee had outlined. Um, a spokesperson said, and this is in quotes, we take our oversight of the water industry incredibly seriously and firmly disagree with these conclusions. Okay. So they feel like they are delivering this increased investment, this stronger regulation and tougher enforcement. Um, but, you know, as we've reported here, it ends time and time again, this has been contested. Um, so I guess it will remain to be seen. And now on to another problem in the water environment and our final news story of the week. It's the news reports that the Prime Minister is hell-bent on scrapping these nutrient neutrality rules um, in highly protected areas through what seems to be a renewed vigour. Why is nutrient neutrality back in the news, Shosha? I thought we were done with this. (laughs) We're never done with nutrient neutrality. Um, According to the Sunday Telegraph... Downing Street is drawing up a new standalone bill um, to ditch nutrient neutrality rules. Um, And they said that ministers could drive this through using their parliamentary majority. Okay, so for the first time listeners of the Eco Chamber who haven't listened to any of our previous podcasts, how have we got here on nutrient neutrality? Without going back too far, because I think that might be outside of the scope of this episode, um, the government did try to scrap the nutrient neutrality rules for amendments to the levelling up and regeneration bill, which, to the relief of many practitioners working in this space um, and conservationists, was defeated in the House of Lords this month. Why, why were they relieved? Um, they were relieved because the amendments would have required councils that are impacted by nutrient pollution to assume that new developments would have zero impacts on protected sites and ignore any evidence to the contrary, even if that was coming from the government's own statutory agencies like Natural England. Okay, yeah, so I've got a development. I will be increasing the phosphate or nitrate load from the poo and the wee that's coming from those houses uh, into a protected site, a triple SI, Ramsar site, whatever, special area of conservation. But I, even if I do that, I don't need to worry about reporting it, or at least I don't need to worry about it being reported because, hey, 
these amendments mean it's okay. Okay, but they were defeated in the House of Lords. They weren't pushed through, um, which is strange because now we know that Rishi Sunak really wants these gone, if we're if we're to believe the news reports through this new bill. What am I as a developer meant to be doing in the meantime? Keep calm and carry on. Very good. <laughs> and what? what <laughs> how do I keep calm? Well, the government's confirmed that um, the existing legal framework on nitrates and phosphates must still be used by planners and developers in areas that are affected by these excess nutrients. Um, It also clarified that Natural England will still be maintaining its oversight of delivering these schemes in England. Also, we should all be keeping an eye on the King's speech um, because there's supposed to be an important piece of legislation on this coming out in that. Okay, so November... I'm, I'm all ears. Yay. Okay, just before we move into our deep dive, it's time for the moment of the week. Shosha, I know you've been dying to tell us this one. What What is your moment of the week? My moment of the week is about a giant onion, which I know that you know about because it was also your moment of the week. It was, it was. And... Everybody Google this because you'll be amazed with just how big this onion is. Um, So the world record was broken last week by a guy called Gareth Griffin at the National Vegetable Society Championships in North Yorkshire for his onion that weighed 19 pounds or for those who work in kilograms, 8.97. And yeah, you see the photo of this thing. It, it, it's literally like it's been photoshopped. It is so big. I couldn't actually get my head around it, nor could the, the man in the photo. His head is so small. Um, yeah, I don't. And I, there is literally nothing I can say to top that moment of the week because I was equally enamoured. Mm-hmm. I almost considered putting it as my desktop wallpaper just, you know, to con- continue to encourage me to strive for greatness. Gareth Griffin, our hats are off to you. Time for our deep dive as ENDS features editor Tess Colley caught up with author, financier and staunch rewilding advocate Ben Goldsmith for a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation about the power plays in government, agricultural policy, funding for nature restoration and rewilding. Take a listen. I'm joined by Ben Goldsmith the environmentalist, financier, chair of the Conservative Environment Network and former DEFRA board member. This year, Ben also became an author with his memoir, God is an Octopus, where he tells the story of how in the aftermath of the tragic loss of his daughter in 2019, it was nature that helped him find solace. In recent years, he's also attracted some criticism from some quarters for what many see as controversial views on subjects such as the need to end intensive sheep farming and campaigning for the reintroduction of wolves to our green and pleasant land. Ben, welcome to the Eco Chamber. Thank you so much for having me on. I noticed on your Twitter profile, on your bio, you you have a quote from Edward Abbey, which says, the idea of wilderness needs no defence, only defenders. And... I always ask this to people who work in this this area, but how do you define wilderness? Because everyone's got a different answer. I mean, there's a spectrum. You know, the the the, the kind of you know, at one end of the spectrum, you've got you know Alaska. You know, you've got the 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 last great wildernesses on on the planet, and and clearly in a place like South Somerset, you're not going to achieve that kind of you know complete intactness. But I, I don't think that matters. And what 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 we're looking to do is to restore natural processes as far as we can in a landscape that is populated by people, in a landscape that is farmed and has been for centuries. And and the convenient truth in Britain and Western Europe is that there have always been large herbivores. Native um, wild cattle may have been extinct in England for a couple of millennia um, and in Europe for maybe three centuries, but they were here for a very long time, brazing and grazing and browsing and trampling and creating these kind of shape-shifting dynamic wood pastures, if you like, which which are, as Isabella Tree puts it, rocket fuel for nature of all kinds. And and domestic horned cattle do something similar. They're a decent proxy. So in, in my landscape, we've switched away from sheep, away from dairy cattle, um, across what's now almost two and a half thousand acres, six mm-hmm. farms. And we've got longhorn cattle in low numbers, 
no more than one per 10 acres, mooching about, roaming where they want, sleeping where they want, eating what they want. Mm. And, and the result is that the shape of the fields is dissolving into the landscape and little pockets of scrub, dog rose, hawthorn, crabapple are popping up through the fields. We've, we've re-wiggled the streams and created new wetlands. Mm. And the landscape is starting to feel pretty wild. And I'm, I'm happy to call that wilderness, even if it's a farmed landscape. Mm. I sometimes use the term wilder farming. But I, th- I think I think you can rewild a window box. You know, if you're on the twentieth floor of a tower block and you have a window box, you know, some native wildflower seeds will attract in pollinators. And you know, I, I I don't believe in being puritan about it. I think it's a spectrum, and we go as far as we can along that spectrum, depending on where we are and what the circumstances are. Yeah, because some people have a very different idea of wild, don't they? Some people would walk down the street and see a sort of messy curb and think it's it's wild, it's too wild, it's messy. Wild is messy. And others, I guess, you know, you and other people in, in the environmental sector, they just see a different thing entirely. Like, is this, do you think in this world we live in where, you know, many people are trying to make more people engage in nature and see it differently, that this, how, do, how does anyone cross that divide? So I don't think you'll find many rewilders that want kind of infrastructure to be overwhelmed by nature. You know, we, we need clear pavements for people to walk on and we need the railway lines to work well and so on. That being said, we have um, a, a unique obsession in this country with tidiness. You know, it's a kind of control thing that you you simply don't find to the same extent in other countries. You know, we're we're a country of maniacs when it comes to straight lines and uniform green, and we employ an arsenal of chemicals and weapons and machines to keep nature out of our gardens. I think it was the writer C.S. Lewis who said that an English garden is a small war zone and I'd rather go out and sit by the river and find some peace kind of thing. And I think that um, that, that extends to, to, to the large landholdings and to the farms. We see tidiness everywhere. And we've exported this idea abroad such that when foreigners come here, they expect to find tidiness. And when they fly into Gatwick Airport or whatever, they see that neat patchwork quilt of fields and they think it's, it, and it is beautiful in its way, but it's been drained of life we haven't left space for nature. It's been drained of color. The abundance of birds and wildlife is just a fraction of what it could be again. And so we must embrace untidiness, you know, and we have this strange idea that, that somehow nature is chaos and we bring order. And in fact, it's the other way around. You know, nature is order and we bring chaos. You think of a natural river system with gently meandering streams and brooks and wetlands and peatlands and ground that is able to act like a sponge and absorb water, you know, add beavers into the mix and they dam up those little streams and they create pools of water. When it rains, the water is held back and released slowly throughout the year. Introduce our tidiness and our so-called order and you get extreme volatility in the hydrological cycle and we get a, f- a cycle of flash flooding in the winter and misery and then hosepipe bans three, three months later in the summer. We bring chaos. Nature is order. And I think we, we need to start to see order as well as beauty and, and, and so on in untidiness. It's interesting when you talk about the quilt patchwork of fields, like you know, everyone knows that image. Um, but I was thinking that patchwork of fields is also, there's money in that and there's money in the farming system and the way that our that land in this country is, is set up, which brings me on to the next thing I want to talk about, which is paying for nature. So who's, and this is, you know, a lot of debate going on about this at the moment, but whose job is it in your view to pay for nature, to pay for nature's recovery? You started with you know, making the point that there's money in this. Is there really money in this? You know, 85% of the food we produce in this country is produced on just 20% of the land. You know, it's, all, it's all in Henry Dimbleby's National Food Strategy report. In fact, the least productive 20% of our land barely makes a dent, you know, less than 2% of total food production. In fact, even less or, or, or even net negative production if you take into account the winter feed that needs growing elsewhere and bringing in to feed those sheep miserably, miserably huddled on the hillside. So, so the idea that in our less productive landscapes, prioritizing food production makes any economic sense whatsoever is an absurdity. Now, in our national park landscapes, in our uplands, now the average sheep farmer is earning less than £6,000 a year on the bottom line. That's not a fair or decent living for anyone. And that's after taking into account the 90% of their total revenues or thereabouts that come from taxpayer handouts. You know, the, the, in economic terms, the system is absurd. So those 30 or 40 million sheep that are preventing the recovery of nature across our most precious landscapes 
are, are not doing anything about food security or, or, or they're not economically rational in any way whatsoever. So the, the, the reform of agricultural subsidies that were put in place by Michael Gove's Agriculture Act 2020, I think is the biggest win, not just for nature in this country, but also f- for farming. Um, because I don't think a system that pays farmers simply on account of how much land they own or manage and no other criteria has any future under any kind of government. You know, mm. 50% of the money was going to the 10% richest farmers. Now, how does that make sense? Under the new system, public money will be allocated to land managers, farmers, and so on, on account of what they are doing in terms of delivering public goods, whether that's restoration of cherished landscapes, helping to mitigate flooding and drought, which costs us an enormous amount each year, sequestering carbon and so on. So I think the public money for public good reform of agricultural subsidies is a massive win. And it's it's a win for the environment. It's a win for farming. And it's also a win for economic rationalism. So, so who should pay for these public goods? I think it's fair to expect that taxpayers pay for these things. And it's fair that those who do them get paid fairly. And I think that the environmental land management budget is not big enough. It's about two billion pounds or thereabouts. It's it's really not enough. We spend 20 billion a year fixing the roads. I mean, I think that you know, 75% of our land is farmed land and we want so much from it. We want beauty. We want amenity. We want we want food, we want fresh water, we want clean air, we want carbon sequestration. Mm. It's worth paying for it properly. And so I, I hope that, um, that the two major parties will commit to increasing that budget as part of their election manifestos. And then, of course, if you consider the environmental land management scheme as a kind of icebreaker ship, you know, plowing a path for these for a system in which the economic value of nature is recognized in decision making, then there's a flotilla of private markets that follow it. And I think that's right and good. The idea of water companies, for example, instead of building concrete infrastructure and plants to clean out the water, how about restoring nature in the sensitive parts of the catchment? Mm -hmm. And that's now happening. We're going to talk about nutrient neutrality in a bit. But but local local authorities in the Environment Agency helping to mitigate flooding by paying for the rewilding of certain parts of the of 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 the uplands and so on. These private markets, I think, make a tremendous amount of sense. But they're the support show. The main show is the government. And I think government funding should be available and should be generous for restoring nature. Mm. That's interesting you said, because you've got such a background in um, sort of investment, the investment world, being a financier, you've established a Natagal, is that how you pronounce it? Real estate company. Um, I read it's, it's, is it, the, is it the Dutch word for nightingale? Yes, it yes. was Charlie Burrell's idea. It's a lovely, lovely name. Because the nightingale is emblematic of the NEP rewilding projects, mm. where of course Charlie has been with his wife Isabella um, integrally involved since the start. Mm. But you're still involved in all of that, but you still think that the public purse should shoulder most of the burden for it because um, a lot, I think the government seems to be wanting the private sector to, to take that on more so. So I, I think public money should be used where private finance won't be available. And I think that the, the, there's a kind of smorgasbord of activities going on in terms of nature restoration all over the UK. And there are some places where private money will be enough. You know, I think if, if, if a particular landscape can do an enormous amount in terms of providing fresh water to a large number of people, then there's a strong case for water companies to pay for that activity. But there are plenty of places where nature restoration isn't going to pay enough to make it worthwhile for those who are doing it. And it's important that we keep people in the land. Now, our landscapes have been farmed for thousands, if not hundreds of years. And um, and I think that farming communities in particular are the backbone and the soul of our remoter landscapes. And we really don't want to see land abandonment in, in the way that, that's taken place across Europe. Mm. And I think we can keep those farmers in the landscape just by rewarding them for leading the restoration of nature and for switching out their um, their sheep for lower numbers of native cattle. Mm. And what do you think, what's your vision? Because you, you're you involved in kind of the, the, the Snatigal company, um, buying up land and, and changing it. Um, where does it go? Do you want to, would you like to establish a national park where... What's your vision for this? So I, I think the most important change that's happening in this country is the reform of agriculture subsidies. And that is going to deliver, I think, a, a much greater transition than any of us imagine on any side of the debate. Um, because it was Warren Buffett who famously said, it's, it's only when the tide goes out that you see who's been swimming without any swimming shorts on. And, and the fact is most uh, uh, farming businesses are not 
um, are not profitable in this country. Most of them are heavily loss making without government subsidy. And most of the food is just produced in East Anglia. Um, and therefore, farm businesses are going to have to engage with the idea of restoring nature as a priority on their land if they're going to continue receiving public money. Mm. So that's the big change. Um, until this change has happened, most rewilding has taken place because of charities in quite a small way. NGOs, wildlife trusts, for example, buying up a bit of land, doing restoration, creating these little islands of nature. And there simply isn't enough philanthropy. There aren't enough uh, people giving their money away at a big level or a small level to, to, to achieve nature restoration at the scale we need. So I think um, I, I think the idea of using private finance to do this is very, very exciting. Mm. And so I think where there's a landscape that is not suitable for development, building houses, and where it's not particularly suitable for prioritizing food production, so mm. lower grade farmland, hillsides, former wetlands and so on, I think, and, and where there is an opportunity to produce tremendous environmental benefits, mm. um, which which can be sold to private buyers. So, mm. for example, water companies, but also some of these mitigation markets where ha- house builders, for example, have to create a biodiversity net gain. And so they have to invest in the restoration of nature elsewhere. I think that there's an opportunity for a new kind of owner to come in. So Natagal has been set up by Charlie Burrell and, 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 and a bunch of others. And the goal is to buy corporate owned land. So land that belongs to large corporations where or, or investment funds and so on in blocks of a thousand acres plus, which are not particularly productive in farming terms, and to restore wild, vibrant nature on that land. And in so doing, to create enough of a yield that makes it a worthwhile investment for large institutional investors. So take a pension fund, which is where most of the money is. Those pension funds have to produce income in order to pay out the pensions to their pensioners. They have to. So they can't no matter how nice it sounds, they can't buy stuff and invest in stuff unless it's producing an income. So if we can build a new asset class, call it rewilding, in which those kinds of investors can put their money and expect reasonably to receive a four, five, six percent annual yield, then then I think we can scale up rewilding in a way that we've never imagined previously. And it doesn't need to be land ownership. You know, in the early days, the idea is to own the land so we can just get on with it. But I think community partnerships will work very well. The community of Langham, for example, and the borders have just bought 12,000 acres or so off the Duke of Buccleuch. You know, partnering up with a community like that and helping them to deliver nature restoration and to generate yield from that is, is the kind of thing we can pursue. And also leases. There, there are plenty of landowners that don't know what to do with their land, but they don't want to sell it. Um, so, so the goal of Natagal is to become a kind of you know, a, a leader in restoring nature and generating a predictable yield from doing that. Mm. And, and, and we'd just be following the kind of path that's been already walked by the likes of commercial forestry, which is now a very normal asset class for any kind of investor, or student accommodation or electricity transmission lines. You know, these are all um, um, these are all asset classes that produce a very predictable financial yield whilst delivering something for society. And if we can make rewilding one of those, then I think the sky's the limit in terms of in terms of um, our ability to do this. And, and we want to look abroad. I mean, imagine, for example, a, a bankrupt paper mill, and no one uses paper anymore. Imagine a bankrupt paper mill in Galicia, you know, which comes with, you know, I'm imagining this, but imagine you know, 20,000 acres of, of eucalyptus plantation. And the only reason why the eucalyptus aren't being harvested is because it's not economic to do so. Well, imagine if you could completely rethink the economics of that piece of land and remove the eucalyptus mm-hmm. and restore the kind of Atlantic temperate rainforest and generate um, a financial yield from maybe voluntary biodiversity credits or voluntary carbon credits mm. or flood mitigation payments of some sort. You know, it'll be a game changer if we can do this. And a lot of NGOs are now doing this. The Nature Conservancy in the US is a leader. There's a firm in America called Ecosystem Investment Partners have just raised their fifth fund. It's a billion dollars. It's purely for profit. And they're restoring wetlands on a massive scale from Florida to California. So is the UK behind in many ways? The US has had certain markets which are driven by regulation for a very long time. So, for example, wetlands mitigation. If you're, de- if you're a developer in America building anything from a, a church parking lot to a new freeway, you, you have to mitigate any harm that you do by establishing new wetlands. And under that federal piece of legislation, about a million acres or hectares, I forget, of new wetlands have been created. Um, and there's the Endangered Species Act, which obliges the states to create a certain amount of habitat for species which are listed. Mm. So in California, they had to create new wetlands and spawning grounds for steelhead, for example, a type of salmon. And so ecosystem investment partners create that habitat. And then they generate a yield from those 
payments from the state. Mm. So the US has been pretty active in a lot of this stuff, but they're markets which are entirely uh, constructed by um, government. And I, I think the UK is doing a pretty good job. Well, speaking of markets which were entirely constructed by the government, you won't have missed the news that the government is seeking to scrap water pollution rules called nutrient neutrality rules uh, for new bills, which, you know, they, they currently prevent um, new development adding to the nutrient load in protected sites, uh, protected waterways, I should say, which are damaged by those same nutrients. Um, and this, the nutrient credit market, where the idea was that um, – you know, companies could or, or private sectors could go and invest in nature-based solutions and then sell on credits to developers, kind of the things we've just been talking about. Um, I've been talking to people saying this is all now going to collapse, this this credit market, um, in the wake of the government saying it's going to scrap scrap that rule. What's your take on all of this? But, but the, the share price of the house builders went up about 5% on the day of the announcement. I mean, my, my initial reaction... Um, was that Michael Gove is one of the brightest and most decent people I know. I've known him since before he entered politics. And so I assume there must be something I'm missing. There must be something here um, that, that I don't get. Mm. Um, because it seems like such an odd decision. It's, it's, it's one of the earliest of these markets to be established in environmental services, and it's working. Um, and it's... Um, it's exactly what a conservative government ought to be doing is is in the same way that we want polluters to pay for the mess that they create. Uh, we also want those who are creating benefits for society to be paid for doing that. Mm -hmm. And so the nutrient neutrality market is, is, I think, a really shining and clever example of how we can achieve these things. Um, and it seems to me they've gone from kind of polluter pays to taxpayer pays, you know, unless I'm missing something. Um, so I'm, you know pretty incredulous about the announcement, but I can't claim fully to understand what exactly is happening. Um, and I just hope that the nutrient neutrality market survives this. Mm. Um, I mean, what else to say on it, really? I mean, the, the, the state of our rivers is an absolute disgrace. When I was on the board of DEFRA in virtually every board meeting and whenever I was granted an audience with Boris Johnson as prime minister, with Rishi Sunak as chancellor, which happened a handful of times, in every one of those meetings, I said that that the pollution of our rivers is a national disgrace and it's one that the public is waking up to very fast and this is going to be explosive mm. and highly damaging to the government. And and th th it's not a new situation. No government in my lifetime has ever done much to clean up our rivers. You know, the, the chemical pollution from industry has improved dramatically, but it's been replaced with sewage, which has a different effect, but a terrible one. In the, the rivers around me in Somerset are all biologically dead because of slurry runoff. Mm. This kind of chronic and occasional acute pollution of these rivers with livestock slurry. No one seems to care. There's never been a prosecution, even though all these rivers all the way down to Cornwall are completely poisoned by livestock slurry. So, so they say if you draw a line from the wash to the Isle of Wight, to the right of that line in the southeast, the principal problem is human sewage. And to the left of that line, the principal problem is livestock slurry mm. and the why is being killed by chicken shit. Mm. Um, so w why the government isn't taking this really seriously when the public clearly cares about it is is beyond me. And um, Well, they, they say that it's, you know, the, the burden of mutual neutrality has fallen on developers and that's wrong. Um, we need new houses. Um, therefore, we're getting rid of the requirement because it doesn't target the right people. And we'll sort it the rest of it out through other means. That's what the government say. But do you do you buy that? I mean, so certainly the, the the scale of the problem is is principally um, the fault of the water companies and livestock farmers. And I think we should be doing everything we can as a society to sort that out. You know, combinations of sticks and carrots w w without much patience. Um, and I I, I I think we're. 10 years too late. You know, we, it's, it's, this should have been done ages ago. We've known about the problem. It's been getting worse and worse. Um, but but I don't think we should let hospitals off the, the hook because, of course, they're also part of the problem. And they've also got the money to deal with this. So I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with it. And I, I think the, the idea of a market mechanism was so neat for house builders paying landowners to create effectively kidneys in the landscape, you know, to clean the water in the form of new wetlands and new rewiggled streams and so on. It, it's a brilliant move. And it's so obviously conservative as well. So I, I, um, 
I don't really know what's going on in truth on on that. Mm. What I do know is that backbench conservative MPs are in a right panic about pollution of the natural environment. And poll after poll now shows that something has changed in the British psyche. You know, young and old, left and right, rural, urban, people really want a clean environment and they really want nature recovery. Mm. I mean, 10 years ago, you, you'd hardly find anyone that even knew that beavers had once been native to Europe and Britain. Now you'll struggle to find anyone anywhere who doesn't know not only that they should be here, but that they're back and that they're playing an enormously important role already in helping to breathe life back into our landscapes. So it's something has changed. People know that our nation has got terribly depleted and polluted nature and they want it better. And I think that's going to be the big electoral issue in the next election. Mm. I mean, you say like Gove, you know, he's... Or you say the brightest, one of the brightest politicians uh, we have. And I, I know a lot of people in the environmental sector quite liked what he did when he was DEFRA secretary. Um, so I mean, you might have insight on this, but what, how influential can Gove be if the rest of the government machine around him wants something else to happen? I, I mean, I just, I mean, he must be a heavyweight, presumably in that cabinet table. I mean, well, the, 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 the triumph for the environmental movement was having someone as heavyweight as Gove, who's instinctively environmentalist, appointed to a department like DEFRA, which was considered, you know, a kind of a demotion. But in fact, it was a wonderful moment. I think his political legacy will be the things he did while he was there. You know, the Agriculture Act that we've discussed, you know, the, the, the Environment Act 2021 is a really powerful document, and far reaching and has ratcheting targets that are pretty good and hard to meet. You know, the creation of an Office of Environmental Protection, which is independent of government to enforce it. The 25 year environment plan is a brilliant piece of work. You know, the Fisheries Act could be better, but it's a start and it gets tougher over time new highly protected marine areas. There was like a purple patch. And for those of us that were involved in creating a conservative environment network, it was like we'd, we'd, we'd arrived, you know, we kind of succeeded in six, seven years of slog. And suddenly we had a caucus of 140, 150 MPs. We had a secretary of state who was one of our alumni, all these environmental uh, pieces of legislation passing through parliament. A lot of stuff happened, a lot of really good stuff, which hasn't yet been reversed. So whilst the, the, mood, the, the, the mood right now is pretty tepid, you know, this is where the little machine that we've built, our little conservative environment network, is tested. And um, we had a bit of a victory on onshore wind last week. And, and I think that there is a rebellious mood among our caucus, caucus of MPs around this. They know that you know, the environment is a, becoming an open goal for Labour. You know, and um, I mean, I th think how many people in this country are undecided on how they vote through their life. You know, they sometimes vote Labour, sometimes vote Conservative. They feed the birds. They love Attenborough documentaries. Mm. They're excited that there are white storks wheeling in the skies above Sussex. You know, they dream of seas full of fish. You know, this stuff really matters to them for the first time in their lives, perhaps. Mm. And neither of the major parties has a big offering yet on nature. The Conservatives, in fact, are going backwards, at least reputationally. You know, it's hard to look at what they've been talking about in the last year or so and think that they're strong on the environment, even though they've actually done a lot of very good stuff, you know, during the last three or four years. So I, it's sort of an open goal. I really hope that that I hope that both Starmer and Rishi realise it before the election. Mm. Um, I don't know how optimistic I am about it. It's interesting you say there's a rebellious mood in 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 Sen's caucus. I mean, you'd expect it in people who are environmentally minded. But if if this let's take go back to the neutral neutrality um, move, if this does go through as as the government has proposed and it scraps the requirement and effectively just hands hands the development sector, you know, free pass to pollute, um, could you see yourself supporting the Conservatives at the next election? The problem is I don't think we have an opposition on it because I think the Labour Party are so scared of being um, labelled anti-house builder and the, the, the pressure to build more houses is so great that I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that the they aren't in complete agreement about the idea that we have to choose between house building and nature, which of course is a nonsense. You know, so I, I that, and, and, and I don't find much comfort in in what the Greens have to say. You know, if you and I've supported the Greens since I was really young. And Caroline Lucas is a friend, and 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 of course I'm so ex excited that that, that that we have Green politicians in Parliament now. Jenny Jones is also a friend, but. If you look at the Twitter feed of most senior Green politicians, it's not really about the environment. It's about other issues, culture wars issues that completely up to their ears in like gender issues and all these other social matters, you know, which I know matter to people. 
but but they're a green party and the british people deserve to have a green party representing green views in parliament and and lobbying for 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 beaver reintroduction and for environmental land management and so on and then the lib dems well i'm not convinced that they've been particularly good on any of this either i mean the greatest proponent of ongoing subsidies for sheep ranching in our national parks has been tim farron no the, the lib dems farming representative farming spokesman so i i am um, I don't know where we're really supposed to turn as voters. Um, I've signed a thing called the commitment, which is a pledge to vote the, vote for the candidate in my constituency who's strongest on these things. Um, at heart, I'm a conservative. You know, I believe in small government. I believe if you work hard and you know, if you if you um you know if, if, if you're successful, that you should be able to benefit from that. I, I believe in government doing the necessary to make sure people are kept safe. But I don't want big government. I think big government is not conducive towards human flourishing. And I don't think it's conducive towards um, protection of nature. You know, you see what's happening in Mexico, for example, it's become a pariah in terms of supporting fossil fuels and, 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 and disadvantaging renewables and deforestation is rampant in both Mexico and Venezuela, the two most socialist countries in South America. And I, I think that big government socialism is not necessarily the answer. And instinctively, I have a problem with that. You know, I was anti the lockdowns. I was anti the response to COVID. It freaks me out. And therefore, I instinctively want smaller government and I want decentralization. I, I similarly don't like power centralized in large corporations. I, I, I like political and economic decentralization where it's rational and possible. So instinctively, I would tend conservative. But Above all else, the natural environment is what matters to me. And I would always vote for the candidate in my constituency that's got the best um, um, set of promises on that. Mm. I, I really hope that Labour come out with a, a big nature plan, a new deal for nature of some sort, and that the Conservatives then feel a sense of pressure to up their game on it as well. We have a year till the next election, so there's plenty of time for them to do this. And I'd love them to try and outcompete each other on this. And it's not expensive. You know, like I said earlier, we spent 20 billion a year on our roads. You know, if you double the farm environmental land management scheme budget, say to four or five billion, it's a rounding error. The Ministry of Defense and the NHS between them probably spend that on stationery. You know, it's not big money to solve these issues. Mm. So um, it shouldn't be that hard for the big parties to go ambitious on it all. No. I mean, just talking about the millions, we did a, ENDS did an investigation earlier this year, a documentary called Wilderness, which found that hundreds of millions of taxpayer pounds have been kind of poured into these to green farming schemes, kind of the predecessor to environmental land management in national parks, like in the same places where all the protected sites in the same places have been degrading. But it kind of makes me think that you talk about it's not it's not much it's it's not big money and it's not, but it can so easily just be put out and nothing happens. But that that's the amazing thing is the way is is the way that established vested interests want even that paltry amount of money that we do have for nature. Um, for their own purposes. I mean, imagine, for example, if the National Health Service paid a private contractor £200 million pounds mm. to, to, to fix up a hospital. And at the end of the period, the hospital was in worse shape than when they started. There'd be a national outcry. It'd be on the front page of Private Eye. And yet that's exactly what's happened on Dartmoor. You know, one of our most special landscapes, but also one of the most ecologically degraded landscapes in all of Europe, an overgrazed wasteland. The peat has dried out. The wildlife has largely gone. Um, it, it's bleak. And yet Natural England has spent £200 million subsidizing farming on Dartmoor for the last 10 years explicitly for the purpose of nature recovery. Mm -hmm. And across every indicator, Dartmoor's nature has got worse during those 10 years. It's, it's, it's beyond belief. And then, of course, Natural England now, under the new environmental land management scheme and a tighter remit and a greater emphasis under the 25-year environment plan on recovering nature in our national parks, not, not to mention the international pledge we've made to restore nature on 30% of land, 30% of sea by 2030, mm -hmm. the Montreal Agreement among nations, has gone back to farmers on Dartmoor and said, listen, there's another 200 million for you, maybe more even over the next 10 years. But this time we really do need a bit of nature recovery. <laughs> so so we're going to need you know, sheep off the moor in the winter, which is exactly how it was um, until quite recently, maybe 1970 or 1980. There were never sheep on the moor in the winter. Mm. In fact, we need substantially fewer sheep, but you can increase significantly the number of native cattle that you have. And you can also increase the number of native horses you have and the money will flow and cue outrage by those vested interests and then by their conservative MPs and other representatives and a debate in parliament in which backbench Tory MPs call for the evisceration of natural England. It's gone beyond its remit and so on. If natural England is strong armed 
into handing out money for old rope on Dartmoor for the next 10 years, I think that we can kiss goodbye to nature recovery in this country for a generation. I mean, I think that's a hit the streets moment. Um, there, there is now going to be an independent review. The decision has been taken away from Natural England and good people, honest people have been lined up to oversee that review. And already those vested interests and those MPs have started to discredit um, that review. But anyone who is rational and who is honest is, is going to be unable to come back with a different recommendation than the one that Natural England have already come up with, which mm. is that you need to get sh- sheep largely out of Dartmoor if you want nature recovery. You know, sheep are forensic grazers. You know, they 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 are, I'm afraid, like locusts in the sense that they will eat all the little juicy wildflowers, the little scrub, the young baby trees, everything, and you'll just get an ocean of millennia grass if sheep are present in in these landscapes. They're not native; they come from Asia Minor. Now, their feet are not suitable for wet, sludgy. English National Park. Someone said it's like, you know, it's like it's like we're taking stilettos to a festival. You know, the, 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 the large number of these sheep die of exposure every winter. You know, there's very serious animal welfare concerns. I think around the concentration of sheep that we have in our upland landscapes, and for what? You know, one percent of our total food production by calorie. You know, hopelessly loss making, not producing a decent income for anyone, and leaving our hills bare and barren, such that if those landscapes were in a developing world country, we'd be rushing to offer our assistance and financial mm-hmm. aid to recover those landscapes. So, you know, if it makes no sense. How is it? How is it? How have we got here? Do you think? Because we've been led to believe that this is a cultural icon, that Britain is a nation of sheep, and it's and it's <laughs> not true. You know, the number of sheep are up probably eightyfold in the last hundred years. Now, there was somewhere between half a million and a million sheep in Britain at the time that Beatrix Potter bought her place in the Lake District. Today, there's anywhere between thirty and forty million sheep. They're propped up entirely with taxpayer subsidies. And the vast majority of the product exported abroad, in many t- often exported alive abroad to be slaughtered halal in the Middle East. You know, terrible suffering on those boats. You know, the sheep are not happy with what's going on, that's for sure. <laughs> Whereas cattle are native. You know, cattle are, are the key ingredient if we want to restore vibrant uh, um, mosaic wood pastures in our national parks, which is what they mostly were anyway two or 300 years ago. And, and I think the most interesting cultural point about sheep is that they were the principal cause of the extinction of British villages since Tudor times. Now, from the Highland clearances to Wales, not to mention what the English did in Ireland, it was principally about sweeping people from the land and their native cattle in order to clear the trees and fill the land with sheep, mostly belonging to rich lowlanders from elsewhere. The sheep were the tool of oppression, which are now fetishized by those people whose ancestors were oppressed. So I really fail to understand the obsession of sheep that you find in, 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 in Wales and Scotland and so on. But in any case, I think as a business model, it's going out. And what we need to do is make sure that those farmers who are reluctant to change that from very conservative communities, that they are supported. We need a just transition in our rural landscapes as much as we need one in our urban um, environment. We need to help these communities to transition to a way of farming that is conducive to nature recovery and that keeps them in the land and gives them security and gives them prosperity. And it's so easy. We can do it through Elm, supported by private markets, and they'll still be producing food. For all those people who say that if we rewild our national parks, you know, we're all going to starve. And, and and those of us that don't starve are are going to be eaten by beavers or whatever they say on GP <laughs> News. Um, it's nonsense. They'll still be producing food. It'll just be beef, less of it, high quality. Um, and I think it's a, I think it's as close to a silver bullet as we can find for these landscapes. Mm. It's interesting because I I I'd like to hear about your time when you were on the the deaf well, non-executive uh, director on the deaf board because you read I read that you told the Guardian in a recent interview that it was an eye-opening experience uh, because when you joined you you said you were horrified by the influence certain groups such as the National Farmers Union had. Um, you were there for about four years. You left last year. Um, had things changed at all on that front by the time you'd left? So watching Michael Gove in action was amazing and George Eustace was exceptional as well. Um, I, I, I met an enormous number of incredibly talent, talented and energetic people in DEFRA. You know, civil servants who probably could have got um, um, ex- extraordinarily high-paying jobs elsewhere, but we're in it for passion and we're doing amazing things. I, I don't think I've met anywhere else I've been such a concentration of brilliant people mm-hmm. and I've stayed friends with lots of them. Um, I think the thing that shocked me 
was the degree to which certain representatives of certain industries had such a grip over the department, specifically representatives of um, of farming, the National Farmers Union, which doesn't speak for all farmers. The Nature Friendly Farming Network has thousands of members, for example, and a lot of farmers are very excited about the new scheme and 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 are generally leaning towards nature recovery and the protection of soil and so on. I think the National Farmers Union has a tendency towards um, short-sighted boneheadedness. You know, let's just resist all change no matter what. Let's have a knee-jerk automatic policy which opposes any species reintroduction, even if it's pool frogs in Norfolk or white storks in Sussex. Um, I, I think the National Farmers Union is a problem and it, it has an enormous hold over DEFRA because as soon as you get selected as a candidate in a rural constituency, the very first knock at the door is from a National Farmers Union locally. Mm. And, 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 and if you piss them off, you're in trouble if you're a rural candidate from any party. And similarly, representatives of industrial fishing, you know, we, the, you know, as George Monbiot puts it, there's a kind of moral force field that surrounds farming and fishing, such that any criticism um, is 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 um, is taboo. You know, you, you, when you think of fishing, you think of the yellow oilskins and the friendly white beard and the little boat chugging on the white waves and coming back to the local harbour. Well, it's not. They're mostly multinational owned giant boats that get the quota. You know, the, these are not um, local communities with local fishing boats, for the most part, that are getting the quota. And yet representatives of those very big boats have a big, big say over policy. And I, I was never fully able to understand why ministers and civil servants felt so beholden to those special interests. And I think it's because of that moral force field. They're so mm. scared of being labeled anti-farmer or anti-fisherman in the newspapers because of these cultural associations. The problem is not scientific or even economic. The problem when it comes to rebuilding life in our seas and restoring natural vibrancy to our landscapes, it's all cultural or psychological. You know, that's the problem. It's not scientific or economic. We have the answers. We know how to do this and we know how to fund this and we know how to do it in such a way that people don't lose out. Mm. If anything, they're more secure and more prosperous afterwards. I think it boils down in part to a societal disconnection from nature. You know, the 80% of the world's remaining intact ecosystems are in the stewardship of indigenous communities. And that's not a coincidence. It's because harmonious coexistence with nature is at the very center of their spiritual and practical lives. And that's something we've lost in, 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 in our modern society. For some reason, nature is, um, has been uh, deprived of its sacredness and it's now a larder to be raided you know, willy-nilly. And the result of that is a society that doesn't really know what nature is anymore. You know, a bleak, bare hillside in the Yorkshire Dales with nothing but sheep and crows, that's nature apparently. Or, or you know, a golf course or, or bright green dairy fields in Somerset. And what we need to do is reconnect people with nature. That's that's why the Rewilding London Task Force is so important. The work that I did with Sadiq yes. Khan and others. Beavers. Bringing nature, and of course my obsession is with beavers, but <laughs> bringing nature back in such a way that it's accessible to all people, rural and urban, and, and, and raising people's, not just their understanding of what nature is and what kind of abundance mm. is meant to be. We can scarcely conceive of the natural abundance that once existed in, in, in this country. You know, the, the skies over Norfolk 200 years ago used to darken for hours, migratory wading birds and geese flying across. You know, the, the number of migrating eels on dark winter nights on the Thames estuary made it look as if there was no water, just eels. You know, the, the, the salmon catch of 1822 on the Tweed was a thousand times greater than the salmon catch on the River Tweed in 1922. And the catch in 1922 on that one river was a thousand times greater than all the salmon caught in all of Britain in 2022. Now, the abundance is just mind boggling, but we've lost touch with that. So what we need to do is reconnect people with nature on a visceral level. And I think that that's a real societal challenge. And it's fun. We just need to get kids to have a good time in nature. We need to get politicians to have a nice time in nature. <laughs> yeah. You've just started a podcast about rewilding now as well. Are you trying to inspire people through that? I spent a lot of time scrolling the websites of obscure regional newspapers, reading stories about rewilding activities in other parts of the world. There are some amazing projects out there, which we just don't know about. I mean, the American Prairie Reserve, have you heard of that? No. You know, that's a project to establish a national park, 3.2 million acres in size to the east of Montana. You know, they've already got the largest free roaming herd of Native American mm -hmm. bison. 
know, the, 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 the Altindalai project in Kazakhstan, an area the size of Germany, the Golden Steppe, it's called, a place that five, six hundred years ago had, um, um, had camels and had wild ass and had millions of saiga antelope and where the dominant predator was the cheetah. You know, the, the wildlife's gone since the Soviet Union. Well, there's a project backed by the RSPB to bring it back. So what I did was I've established a podcast to have 30-minute conversations with the people leading these projects, just because it's food for the soul to know that these things are happening all over the world and it's optimistic and it can be done and it happens quickly. So yes, rewilding the world with me. <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to be listening to it. Thank you so much for coming on the Eco Chamber. It's been absolutely fascinating talking about all of this. Um, and good luck with all the many things you are involved in. Thank you so much for having me on. I feel very grateful. In response to some of Ben's criticisms, an NFU spokesperson in a statement said, the NFU is not against species reintroduction in the right circumstances. What we have always maintained is that any potential impacts on farming need to be fully understood and the necessary plans to minimise those impacts are put in place before any reintroduction is implemented. End quote. And that's it. On today's episode, I've learned that the PM has binned a bunch of environmental policies, just not a policy about seven bins. That a charge of complacency against the Environment Secretary will be a surprise to few water campaigners. That nutrient neutrality policy won't sink despite the PM's best efforts. And maybe we need to bring a little chaos to our freakishly tidy attitudes to nature. Thanks, Ben, for that insight. My thanks to Shosha AD, Tess Colley and Ben Goldsmith for coming on to this week's episode of the Eco Chamber. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, listeners, your views, your opinions. So you can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on our socials using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.